Our scripture reading today from God's Word comes from Matthew chapter 5. So if you would turn to that passage as we prepare to hear God's Word. We are going to read verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. The words of Jesus. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray together once more before we get into Matthew 5 this morning. Father, we just want to ask simply that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts this morning would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, that we would receive the implanted word with meekness, like Peter says, which is able to save our souls. So help us to have freedom in this room to have not only the access that we have to your word right now, but that your word would have access to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're familiar with the Barna Group, they're a a group that does surveys, religious surveys. Some of them are focused mainly around the church and the conditions of the church, and they're pretty well known for doing wide surveys in the evangelical church. And they do a lot of surveys with language that describes Christians as born again, which is a biblical term used to describe what a Christian is. Well, in a recent survey, this was what they found out about those who claim to be born again Christians. Only 9% of them tithe. Of the 12,000 teenagers who took the pledge to wait for marriage, 80% of them had sex outside of marriage in the next seven years. 26% of traditional evangelicals do not think premarital sex is wrong. White evangelicals are more likely than Catholics and mainline Protestants to object to having black neighbors. In other words, the broadly defined evangelical church as a whole in America, according to this survey, is apparently not very unlike the world. It goes to church on Sunday and it has a veneer of religion, but when you press it down and you look at the heart of it, it's basically an add-on to the same way of life the world lives with zero transforming power. I'm not saying that their research is wrong. It appears to be appallingly correct. I'm not saying that the church is not as worldly as they say it is. I'm saying that the writers of the New Testament... And specifically, Jesus himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we begin today, think in exactly the opposite direction about what it means to be a child of God, a citizen of the kingdom, to be born again. Instead of moving from a profession of faith, like this Barna survey does, to the label born again, to the worldliness of these so-called born again people, to the conclusion that, well... The new birth really doesn't change people all that much. The New Testament moves in the other direction. It moves from the absolute certainty that Jesus radically changes people to the observation that many professing Christians are indeed, as the Barna Group says, not radically changed and therefore not born again. That's the way the New Testament moves. It doesn't move the way the Barna Group moves. And I'd rather be in line with the way the New Testament moves. The New Testament moves from the reality that to say that we have encountered Jesus, to say that we have come to know him and not been changed or transformed at some fundamental levels, it doesn't mean we're sinless, but it does mean we have been transformed on the inside. To say that that has no bearing and no effect on our behavior and our influence and the way, our character and the way we live our lives is ludicrous. It's just ludicrous. And so I want to say loud and clear 
that when the Barna group uses the term born again to describe American churchgoers whose lives are indistinguishable from the world and who sin as much as the world and who sacrifice for others as little as the world and embrace injustice as readily as the world and covet things as greedily as the world, that it's using the term in a way that would be unrecognizable to Jesus. And I'm not on a campaign to pick on the Barna group this morning. I think some of the stuff they discover is very helpful. That's very helpful to know. So I'm not on, I'm just trying to illustrate the point to get us into Matthew 5 this morning that when Jesus talks about being a citizen of the kingdom and being a disciple of his, it requires a fundamental change in the heart of the human being that affects the way that person lives their lives. That's what I'm saying. And if you've been with us up to this point, we're, we're basically making our way through the gospel of Matthew chapter by chapter. So if you're just with us, um, for this week or, or just coming into the series now, that's what we're headed. We're in Matthew chapter five this morning. So we've seen up to this point that Jesus is basically reliving the Old Testament story. What he's doing, what, what the gospel writer Matthew is doing and telling us this story about Jesus is that he's actually showing that Jesus is fulfilling where Israel failed. We see this in the way the story is written, from the genealogy to the escape from Egypt, so to speak, through the baptism, through the the water, into the desert to be tempted. And now in Matthew chapter 5, we know what if if you're familiar with the Old Testament, what happens to the people of Israel after the temptation in the wilderness or after they proceed through the wilderness? There's Moses ascends to the top of the mountain and he begins to... He receives the commandments from God and he comes down and he tells the people, this is the nature of the covenant that I've established, that God has established with us. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5. He is the greater Moses. He's the new Moses who has come to the top of the mountain to expound the heart of the law of God, what God has always wanted from his people and describe it to them in a way that had been polluted and corrupted through the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day. And what he's trying to do is clear away the debris so that they can see to the heart of what the covenant with God is all about. So what we're going to do this morning is what I want to do is is look at Matthew chapter 5 under three headings. So the first one is going to be the concern of the sermon. What is the concern? Now, I've called this, if I don't think we have the image on the screen, but I've called this sermon the greatest sermon ever preached, part one. And that is no reflection on my sermon. I guarantee you that this sermon this morning will not be the greatest sermon ever preached because it's preached by me and I am far from the greatest preacher. But it is a sermon about a sermon. This is the Sermon on the Mount that we begin this morning, as it's been traditionally called. And so it's a sermon by Jesus. And that is the greatest sermon ever preached that I'm, that I'm arguing because no other point in the gospel do we have an extensive sermon like this sermon. I mean, this is the fullest, longest teaching of Jesus to a group of people that we have recorded in the New Testament. We have other examples of his teaching, but this is the longest. This covers three chapters, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. And what we're going to do is just cover Matthew 5 this morning. So we're just getting Jesus' introduction. And then we'll see the middle part next week. And then, Lord willing, after Easter, we'll look at the last concluding part of the sermon. So what I want to talk about first of all this morning is the concern of this sermon. In other words, what is Jesus wanting to accomplish through this sermon? I mean, any good preacher asks that question. All right. The first question that I was taught to ask when I, when I'm looking at a text to preach it is what does God want to get done through this? Not what you want to get, not how does it break up, what's a cool outline, what's helpful way to communicate it, get your introductory story right, make sure your illustrations are connecting with people, get to the application because people want to know what to do. No, it's none of that. That's all important. But the point is you better get the burden correct. You better get the concern right. You better make sure that if I were to look out into this crowd and Jesus is sitting out there, that I check the look on his face and make sure he doesn't give me a weird look. Like, mm, that's not what I'm talking about. No, you want to make sure that the burden is right. All right, that the concern of the sermon is right. And that's what Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, that is the concern. The verses that Dave read for us before I came up to preach are the concern. So look at those verses. Notice what he says. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's, he's, he's trying to join the lineage here of the Bible story. He's not saying I've come here to replace everything that God said before or anything like that. What I've come here to do is to fulfill it. Notice he says, verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Very critical. This is the interpretive key of the whole sermon. This is the burden that Jesus has for the Sermon on the Mount. And it is this. We have to have a righteousness that exceeds religious leaders' righteousness. We have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, if you actually pause and think about that, that's a tall order. Because it wasn't like the scribes and Pharisees were the criminals of the day. You know, that they were like the worst people that you could possibly... They were the best. I want you to see what their righteousness consisted of. What was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Perhaps no better way is that really unpacked than in Matthew chapter 23. We'll get there in some months, but go ahead and turn there now. We'll take a sneak peek. Matthew 23. And I want you to see what some of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was. Look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 33. Jesus has, you know, he's just such a gentle preacher. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some will flog in your synagogues and persecute them from town to town. And that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the blood of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. That truly, I say to you, on the, all these things will come upon this generation. I mean, this is this is his concluding remarks of what the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is leading people to, but it's not what it consists of. Okay, I want you to see some of the things that it consists of. Look at verse twenty-three. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Now, he's critiquing them for ignoring greater issues for lesser issues. But notice what they're doing. They're tithing. They're generous. I mean, if they found an extra piece of mint on the floor, they tithe the portion of it. Like if they found some coins in the street, some of that's going in the offering plate. I mean, they're generous people. They've built a discipline into their lives of consistent generosity and giving. Matthew 23, verse 15. Notice what they do to evangelize. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when they become a proselyte, that's a convert. You make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. But notice, they're willing to sacrifice to make converts. They go a long way to be a missionary. They'll lay their lives down to bring somebody into the fold. I mean, would you go over land and sea to make a convert? Some of us won't even go across the street. But they'll go across the land and sea. They will do everything they can to make a convert. So they're, 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 they want to be generous with their, their resources. They want to make converts. They want to share the teaching of the word of God with people. I mean, we could go through others. We'll, we won't do that for sake of time, but... What we see here is some righteous people. We see some people who would make some pretty good church members. They give to the mission. They go on the mission. That's what we want from church members. It's not all we want from church members. So the dividing line here in Jesus' mind when he talks about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, is not between good people and bad people. That's not the dividing line. The dividing line is between natural people and miraculous people. That's the dividing line. In other words, self-centered people and duty-centered people are the same kind of person. They just look different. But what they are within is made of themselves. Listen, brothers and sisters, the flesh, the sinful nature that we have by nature, does not merely produce immorality. It also produces 
civic righteousness. It also produces socially beneficial behavior. It produces good parents and hard workers and religious people and churchgoers. The flesh produces all of that. I can be a non-miracle packaged as selfishness or altruism. None of that requires a supernatural work of the Spirit of God to renovate a human heart. Self-justification and good appearances are not what Jesus came to do for us and in us. That is not what it means to save people from their sins. He came to give us a righteousness that works its way all the way down to the heart and then ushers forth in love, purity, and holiness. See, that was what the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees failed to have. It didn't penetrate all the way down. It stayed on the surface. Notice what Jesus says about them in verses 25 to 28. Hope you're still in Matthew 23. We'll go back to Matthew 5 in just a second. But Matthew chapter 23, 25 to 28 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is very illustrative of what their main issue was. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So there's the point. Outwardly, you appear outwardly righteous to other people. Jesus' point is you can't judge a book by its cover. You can't judge a book by its cover. You can't tell by the, by external behavior whether a person is truly a Christian. You can't tell by external behavior alone. Now, there is certainly external behavior, and Jesus is going to get into some of that in the, in the sermon, but his point is, is that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was a largely external righteousness. It's not enough, Jesus says, for us to be righteous on the outside if we're not righteous on the inside. It's not quantitatively greater righteousness that he's talking about. It's a qualitatively greater righteousness. Jesus is not saying, look, if you want, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, in other words, unless you take that tithe of mint even further than they do, or unless you take that particular zeal for evangelism and to make a convert even further than they do, you know, it's not talking about quantity. It's not talking about that. It's talking about a qualitatively different kind of righteousness, a righteousness that is a pr- production of divine grace in the human heart and not righteous deeds produced by good moral human effort. That's the difference. And if you're like me, and I'll get to this more later in the sermon, but that should absolutely crush you. That should crush you. That the righteousness that Jesus expects, the in fact, the righteousness that Jesus demands if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, has to exceed the most religiously devoted, prayerful, generous, externally holy, righteously concerned, civil people in the world. So often in our culture, and I think even the Barna Group study that we quoted earlier would would reference that, that that's what's equated with what it means to be a Christian. I mean, a lot of people think that just being a Christian is becoming a better external person, like the behavior changes, right? Like I stop doing this, I start doing this, I start being this, I stop being this way, I start being this way. It takes no miracle from God to be that way. It just, it just, it just enough pain needs to come into your life. To be like, that's dumb. That doesn't work. I shouldn't be doing that. I mean, we need not equate the new birth to somebody realizing that their consequences of choices over a period of time led them to a certain decision that was unproductive. And they're like, I need to change that and probably go a different route because this obviously isn't working for me. So maybe I'll try the moral route. Maybe I'll try the be a good person route. And the flesh can generate all kinds of energy towards that. 
The flesh can, can put you on a path to being a good upstanding person where a person would, where a, a, you know, a pastor might lay his hand and say, look at what God's done in this brother. Just amazing. And it could have been nothing of the work of God at all. But merely the production of, uh, of a, of a fleshly desire to be a, a better person in the eyes of other people. So Jesus came, notice, notice what the, at the, is at the heart of, of his concern here. In verse 19, when he, when he looks at the scribes and Pharisees and he sees what's going on, notice how he describes it in verse 19. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least. Notice, see, that's what's happening. The scribes and Pharisees are relaxing the commandments of God. Now, if you were to look at them, you wouldn't think that. People who are walking around in those days like, man, those guys are strict. But Jesus says, no, they are relaxing God's commandments because they're confining it to the outside. They're confining it to behavior. That's a relaxation of God's commandments. God doesn't want your good, godly behavior. That's not fulfilling the law. That's not the commandment. That's not what the purpose of it is. He wants your transformed, grace-renovated heart. And that's what the Pharisees didn't have. See, because when we hear that, then we're stripped. When we hear that, when we hear like, okay... If I was to do everything the scribes and Pharisees could do, if I was that faithful, if I was that externally conformed to the law of God, if I was had devoted my life to all these sorts of things that God in the Old Testament had, had and there, you're going to see some of them here in Matthew chapter five. If I devote, God said, that's not even the, that's just the least. That's just the bottom of the barrel. That's not the whole goal. So he's, he's come here to clear away the debris. And that's his concern of the, that's the concern of the sermon. It's to clear away this religious veneer that had covered the people and to get at the heart of what the kingdom of God is really all about. So let's move on. Point number two. That's point number one, the concern of the sermon. Point number two, the content. Now we're going to get to Jesus method here. What is he after? What's he teaching? What's he going to start teaching? What's the righteousness of the scribe? What's the exceeding righteousness consist of? What is the righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees look like? What is the kingdom of God, miraculous, new birth, transformed, divine grace, righteousness produce? And there's three things in Matthew chapter five. One is transformed character, transformed influence, and transform behavior in that order. In that order. Transform character on the inside. Something happens on the heart. That leads to a transformed influence with others. Which ushers in a transformed behavior. That's the way he goes through it. So Matthew 5, 1 through 12 is the transformed character. We've often called it the Beatitudes. Let's read those together. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you that's how he begins this is a resume so to speak of a transformed character you want to know what a transformed human heart looks like something that only divine grace can produce here it is poverty of spirit mourning for sin Meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mercy, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for righteousness sake. 
That's the character of a transformed person. And it's really, it's interesting, you know, any substantial study of the Beatitudes, and several years ago, not in this church, but when I was training for ministry, I had the opportunity to preach them one at a time and really study this section. Uh, Obviously, we're not going to do that this morning, but there is a flow to this. All right, there is a there is an intentional flow. It it starts vertically with God and then it proceeds and affects horizontally with people. It's just like what the Ten Commandments do. All right, they start vertically with God and then that should tell you something about what Jesus is doing here. They start vertically with God. So the idea is we look at God, we see God for who he is, and we don't say, I can do that. I can do everything he's required of me. No, when we understand what he requires of us and we realize how short we've fallen, poverty of spirit is produced. Deep, profound humility, brokenness, contrition, repentance, a sense of undoneness before God. That produces mourning and meekness and a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Both an external righteousness through Jesus that only God can provide us, but also an internal transformative righteousness produced by the Holy Spirit. So we desire both of those. And then that issues in being a merciful person, because we've received mercy, a pure in heart person, because our hearts have been cleansed, and we've seen God's holiness and purity, a peacemaking disposition, because God has made peace with us, And a willingness to lay it all out there for him, which may result in persecution. And according to Timothy, will result in persecution. If we're godly. So, there, there's the portrait. Okay, so what I really want to do is just kind of camp on this whole idea of poverty of spirit for a minute. Alright, what does that mean? It is confessing and realizing and feeling and owning our spiritual bankruptcy before God. That's what it is. It's full, honest, factual, conscious, conscientious confession before God of personal, moral unworth. That is the, that is the mark of the miracle. When a person is consciously aware based upon full knowledge of who they are and who God is, that they are personally and morally unworthy of God. The Holy Spirit has visited that person. Because they see nothing in themselves that's able to commend them to God. They look to God alone for mercy and depend upon the Lord. It is complete absence of all pride, self-assurance, and self-reliance. It's the tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. It's to feel and know ourselves to be the chief of sinners. It's to say, I am guilty from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. I am unrighteous. I am ungodly. I'm, I am. Hear me saying I am unrighteous in and of myself. I am ungodly. I am undone. I'm a sinner. I'm a lawbreaker. I'm a rebel. I'm an enemy. I'm a traitor. I'm a spiritual adulterer. I'm a coveter. I'm an idolater. I'm wicked. I'm hellish. I'm vile. I'm evil. I'm bad. I'm wrong. I'm perverted. I'm twisted. I'm crooked. I'm dirty. I'm rotten. I'm stained. I'm polluted. I'm despicable. I'm depraved. I'm wretched. That is me. In and of myself, apart from the A-plus report card, apart from the staying out of the principal's office as a kid, apart from the good guy who would never leave a job without giving two weeks' notice, I'm all that because that's me compared to God. Everyone is this way. And it's only those who are made to feel this way who have a shot at the kingdom of God. Because this is the way, this is the story of God's people in the Bible. Let me just give you some illustrations, okay? Abraham, Genesis 18, 27. What faithful Abraham think about himself? Quote, I am but dust and ashes. What Jacob say about himself? Genesis 32, 10. I'm not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. What about Moses? 
Exodus 3.1. Who am I? I'm not eloquent. What about David? First Chronicles 29.14. Who am I and what is my people that we, would, we should be able to do this? What about Solomon? First Kings 3.7. I'm a little child who does not know how to go out or come in. What about Isaiah? Isaiah 6.5. Woe is me for I am unclean. What about John the Baptist? John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. What about the tax collector in Luke 18.13 and 14? God be merciful to me, the sinner. What about the centurion? I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just speak the word. What about the Canaanite woman? Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What about Peter? Luke 5, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. What about Paul in Romans 7? Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. I'm the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles. Who will save me from this body of death? Let's get out of the Bible for a second. Talk about Augustus Toplady, hymn writer, when he wrote the following. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless. I look to thee for grace, foul, dirty, filthy, sinful. I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. What about William Carey, great missionary? You know what's on his tombstone? Born August 17th, 1767, died June 9th, 1834. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. That's a regenerate man. That's the mark of the new birth. Not turning over a couple of leaves and chipping off some corners of sinfulness. Having your whole heart renovated. And it's renovated by an encounter with a holy God. Now it doesn't have to be met, and we'll get to this, with profound emotional experience. It doesn't have to have that. It can be quiet and small. Have you ever seen... Like I was, I remember walking out when I was a kid one time and I saw our sidewalk in front of our house and I walked out and I, I looked at it and I, I looked down and I'm like, what cracked that sidewalk? And I picked it up and it's just a little blade of grass. I'm like, what are you made of grass? <laughs> you split the sidewalk and it was just this little blade of grass. Well, that's the way it works in some people's conversion. It's just this little blade of grass but yet cracks the whole inside of the person's heart. That's the way it worked with my conversion. 15 years old punk kid, told you the story. I walked into a church after my grandfather's funeral. And the first time I'd been in a, in a church in a long, long time, not having grown up in a Christian family or anything like that, walk into the church, pastor's preaching, pastor's talking about the doctrine of creation. Not even talking about Jesus. Talking about how God made the world and, I'm just, he's preaching this, you know, big vision of God and talking about how God made the world and all this stuff. And I just sitting there in my seat. God made me. And I'm living like he didn't. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I don't even know him. I don't even know why he made me. And all of a sudden, it begins. The work of the Spirit. I mean, it was a very quiet, nothing new. I mean, nothing spectacular. But the blade of grass cracked the sidewalk that day. So what we see here is transformed character. That's my point. And then let's move on. A second mark or the second content is transformed influence. Verses 13 through verse 16. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how will it be, how will the saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that it may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, transformed influence is not it's not about being a good person who influences society in positive ways and makes a difference in people's lives 
that salt that could have lost its saltiness. What, what, what's talk, what Jesus is talking about here is an uncompromised, unhidden faithfulness to Jesus. That's, uh, that's willing to let reputation go and live all out for him. Because that is a salt that has not lost its saltiness. That is a light that has not been hidden. It's not compromised with the world. It's all out, laid out for Jesus. My life is yours. I want to follow you wherever you take me. That's what it means to have a transformed influence. It means, Lord Jesus, the greatest thing I need in my life is to have your transforming presence in me and through me. That's what I want. It's what it's what Keith longs for. It's what this is just one illustration this morning from our God at work time. That's that's the goal. It's to have an influence. And he's not the only one influenced. It's the other guys in the group, too. There's cross-pollination going on there. But the point is, is we're going to help preserve our saltiness. We're going to help preserve our light because sin kills it. Sin kills saltiness. It kills the light. It puts it under a basket. People get confused. I mean, that Barna study, I keep referring back to it, but it's like, no wonder the world's confused about what a true Christian is. They hear a Christian say it. I'm a Christian. And they look at their life and they're like, they just take them at their word. And we shouldn't take people at their word. We shouldn't just assume that just because somebody says something, that that's the way it really is. We don't need to be walking around being skeptical and, you know, always suspicious. But we do need to have some biblical clarity about us that says, okay, all right, I'm glad you say it. That's good. But does your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Church going does not a Christian make. So what we see here is transformed character in the Beatitudes, verses 2 through 12, transformed influence in verses 13 through 16, and finally transformed behavior in verses 21 through the end of the chapter in verse 48. Which we're not going to read all of, but it has a very similar flavor to it. There are six areas of behavior that Jesus picks out here. When he looks at the Pharisees and he says, okay, their behavior is, according to verse 19, relaxing the commandments of God. This is not what the commandments of God intended. Here's what the commandments of God intended. That's why Jesus says six times, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's teaching the multitude here. He's teaching the crowds. He's teaching his disciples. His disciples are there. And he's teaching them and he's saying to them, listen, you guys have heard it said by your religious teachers that this is what it means to obey God. I'm here to blow that up or at least supplement it significantly. <laughs> I'm here to fill out that picture. All right. So let's look at one example. Anger, verse 21 it says, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Anybody having a hard time with that one? Like, just don't kill anybody today. There's the commandment of God. It's all God requires of you. Just don't shoot anybody, stab anybody, strangle anybody today. You'll be good. See, that's the least. That's relaxing the commandment. Jesus is going to put the pressure on. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Uh Uh-oh, we're all in that camp. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Uh Uh-oh. And whoever says, you fool, I've said a lot worse than that, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. How many of you have have had a problem with a church member and gone to multiple services over multiple weeks and left it unresolved? That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's... He's saying, get after that. Solve bitterness and anger and discord between a brother. Don't play with that. Because if you let it go and you don't even care about it, it's a manifestation that you may not be born again. Born again people don't act like that. Born again people don't say, well, things are never going to get better with that brother. Screw him. Christians don't talk like that. Now, in our weak moments, yeah, we can sin that way. We can talk that way. But if it, if it's a settled disposition of the heart that's just go, that's committed to that, that direction, that's when a loving brother, sister, pastor comes along and says, brother, you cannot hang on to that. The Lordship of Christ decision right now, is he your Lord or not? 
decision. Yes, he's my Lord. Then you got to let that go. You got to let that go. Line in the sand. It says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. There's the principle. While you're going to, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. That's a metaphor, too, for what's going to happen at the day of judgment for people who don't behave that way. Verse 26, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you paid the last penny. And if it's in hell, you're never getting out because the penny will never be paid. The last penny will never come. So Jesus presses, takes, takes it out of the realm of just murder and pushes it down into the realm of anger and human discord and disagreements and problems that come up with people. He said, that's what God's after. See, that requires a transformed heart, doesn't it? That requires a heart that desires to really please God and not just protect a social image. Lust, verse 27, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Just stay out of bed with someone who's not your spouse. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than with your whole body to be thrown into hell. See, if Jesus were here, he would open up a discussion about pornography use with hell. That's what he would talk about. He was talking about, do you really want porn? If you want porn, you want hell. So enjoy your porn. Porn and a a porn addiction that is unfought. I'm talking about an unfought one. Not somebody who's struggling, seeking accountability, opening himself up, talking to people, seeking to make himself accountable, get help, stumbling from time to time. That's all marks of a genuine Christian. It's not perfectionism here. But a person who says, nah, it's, God doesn't really care about it. You know, it's not an issue for him. I can still be a Christian and hide it and keep it away from people. And no, Jesus says, no. He says, where's the vigilance? Where's the hand cutting off? Where's the eye gouging out? Not physically. Don't go take a screwdriver to yourself when you get home. That's not going to help anything. It's about the heart. Remember, you can change the behavior, but you can't change the heart. So it's about a heart. How do I, where do I get a heart that loves purity? Where do I get a heart that loves what God loves, what Jesus loves? Where do I get a heart that doesn't love victims of sexual abuse and watches me get off at their pleasure? The horrid things that have happened to these women. The slavery that they are under and the men that are propagating it. Where do you get a heart that hates that injustice? See, that's a, that's a transformed heart. That looks at that and doesn't just look at the images, but looks at what's going on to create the images in the first place. And begins to hate that. Hate a world where that's okay on somebody's watch. Divorce. It was said also, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, the Pharisees would have said, okay, you want to get a divorce? Just make sure there's a certificate. Got to keep things official around here. But Jesus says, look, if you want to get a divorce, there's there's evidences of deeper issues. Way deeper issues. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever married a divorced woman commits adultery. See, he's getting at the heart that is not right. Oaths, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. See, he's just saying, you shouldn't have to say, hey, trust me on this. If See, if you have to say that, it's because you're a liar and you have an untrustworthy reputation. You, you should just be able to say, yeah, I'll do it. And you do it. Nobody has any doubt about it. You don't have to take an oath. You have to make a promise. I promise, man. Just I promise, man. Listen, I promise. Okay? I promise this time. I super promise. Super duper promise. If you got to do all that, it's it's evidence that you don't have an integrous heart. 
See, Jesus' point is no amount of external conformity and regulation is going to do anything to change a person. Retaliation. You've heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is true. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Look, it's just good grief. This level of not, it's not just, hey, pay him back. It's, hey, love him excessively. And that's where he leads into love your enemies. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he who makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Just greeting our friends and loving our friends, but not seeking to bless and love our enemies. Again, we look at that and say, yeah, that's what natural people do. Just love the people that like you and greet the people that enjoy being around you. Now, I said, I kind of I broke an oath here. I said that I wasn't going to read that whole chapter. Right? I said we wouldn't have time to read through the whole thing, but I was just convicted when I even said it. Like, whose words are more important here? Yeah. Jesus or mine, all right? If I get nothing done in this whole sermon, I'm going to make sure I read all the words of Christ to us this morning. And so I wanted to get, let my yes be yes and not let my not say, I promise I won't ever do that again. <laughs> but, man, isn't, I mean, you, you get Jesus' point, right? And we could spend more time on each one of these, and it's worth studying. But sometimes it's also valuable just to step back and say, you know what? Just let all that hit you at once. Let all that land on you and feel like, okay, Jesus is stepping up the game here. It's not just about, I mean, people, the disciples hearing this would have been like, and like they said to him many times, no doubt, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven? Who can, who can do that? If the scribes and Pharisees can't, then who can? And Jesus, no doubt, as he would have said, as he said before in other places in the Gospels, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Because that's, see, that's, what, that's where conversion starts. Conversion starts with my life entering the kingdom of heaven is a human impossibility. That's where, if you say that and you feel that deep in your soul, you're very close to the kingdom, right? My life entering the kingdom of heaven is a human impossibility, but it's not a divine impossibility. God can bring it about. And so here's the connection. This is the last point. This is the connection to the sermon to us. We've seen the concern of it, the content, now the connection. I think this sermon is getting after two main things. One, it's trying to help us show our need for Jesus, and it's trying to point us to the way of Jesus, our need for and the way of Jesus. See, show me a man or a woman or a boy or a girl that claims to be living up to the standards of this sermon, and I will show you a man who has either never read it, does not understand it, or is a liar. The sermon does not encourage self-righteousness. It condemns us for falling short of God's righteousness and drives us in desperation to Jesus. John Stott says it this way. People typically see the Sermon on the Mount as quite feasible, while the other says it's impossible. The truth lies in neither extreme position. For the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every man, nor totally unattainable by any man. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. To put them within everyone's is to ignore the reality of man's sin. They are attainable, all right, but only by those who have experienced the new birth, which Jesus told Nicodemus was the indispensable condition of seeing and entering God's kingdom. So that's, it shows us our needs. So if you are crushed by this sermon, if you are reminded of your profound need for Jesus and the fact that he alone can fulfill the righteousness that is described here, welcome to the kingdom of heaven, repenting and believing. 
You can be encouraged by that. But also, this is not to create in you a... Because Jesus is preaching this as reality. He's not just preaching this as theory. He's not just saying, hey, see, you need me. Better come to you for forgiveness. No, he's talking about once you come to him for forgiveness and receive the Holy Spirit and are able to be transformed, now you can begin to live into this. Imperfectly for sure, but really, you can begin to live this way. And that's exciting. That's exciting. And so the the sermon not only shows us our need for Jesus, but it also shows us the way of Jesus. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson says about that. So often the Sermon on the Mount is preached like, here's the standard. Look how miserably you failed. Pull yourself together and do better. This approach ignores what is central to the sermon's message, namely our relationship to Jesus Christ. It is possible to see the sermon as a creator of hopelessness, driving its hearers only to despair. The sermon shows us what we ought to be as Christians but fail to be. We cannot avoid some sense of guilt as we read Jesus' words. Undoubtedly, we sense how fall short we fall. But, here's the key, but the sermon is not aiming to produce a sense of hopelessness and despair in us. Rather, it's intended to set before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our lives to become. That's the goal. The goal is, wow, I can live free of all this stuff. I can be changed and transformed so that I don't have to be subject to not just external murder, but I can actually have the anger rooted out of me and the bitterness rooted out of me. And I can have the lust and the pride rooted out of me. And I can have love put into me. And I can have integrity Put into me and holiness put into me. I mean, that's awesome. That's awesome. And that's our hope. And you've experienced that. Most of you in this room who are growing in grace right now as redeemed children of God. But I just want to tell you that there's more. There's more that we can have. There's further we can make progress. Yes, it will be a struggle the whole way. But greater is he who is in us than he's in the world. Worship team, come up. I'm going to close in prayer and we'll sing together in response to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you, first of all, that you are a good doctor to us. You're the good physician. You're the great physician. Lord Jesus, you demonstrate yourself as the great physician here in this text. We just want to tell you, like you said, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. It's not the well who need a physician. It's the sick. We are the unrighteous. We are the sick, Lord Jesus. Heal us. Heal us. Thank you that for most of us in this room, you have done a profound initial healing. You've forgiven our sin. You've given us your righteousness. You've given us the Holy Spirit. But there's still, I know myself and I just even my own brothers and sisters knowing their hearts as well, that there is remaining white tombness about us there's remaining externalism there's remaining phariseeism and legalism and in a sense that we've arrived even though we might say we haven't we would all confess we've not arrived but functionally a lot of us feel like we have help us to know that we are you're not done with us and that there is more that you desire to do with us and there's further you desire to take in, take in us so that the kingdom of God may, might truly bear fruit and be born in our lives. And we just want to submit ourselves, Lord Jesus, to your kingship right now. We pray that you as the sovereign king would move in our lives and renovate our houses, the houses of our hearts. It's such a pain to live in those houses sometimes while you're doing the renovation. So much dust and clutter and noise and difficulty. But nevertheless, persuade us by your word, that you're doing a great work. And help us to submit ourselves to your renovation plan and go where you want to go and do what you want to do and feel how you want us to feel and act how you want us to act. We acknowledge we can't do it by ourselves. No human being, no pastor, no no preacher, no Bible study, nothing that we do is going to be able to produce that. Only the Spirit of God can produce that. And so we pray that, Spirit, you would do what only you can do And what only you can get glory for, which is transforming us from one degree of glory to the other, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. Stand and sing.
the world you step down into darkness open my eyes let me see beauty that made this heart adore you hope of a life spent with you and here I am to quickly. Uh, You can remain standing for this. They won't be long. Um, Good Friday service is March 25th right here at six o'clock. Please make plans to join us for that. Um, TNT tickets will be the TNT will be the next day. It's in between Easter and Good Friday on March 26th. Tickets are available outside in the lobby for that. That's all the money that's raised for that's going to go to benefit our youth as they make the trip to the Dominican Republic this summer. So tickets are available. Pick those up. One last thing. Those of you who received the email or read it this week from our uh, deacon, chairman of the deacons, Tim Hoke, about the chairs, just want to remind you all before we get out of here, we have had a couple close calls with kids as we're stacking chairs up and trying to get them in the closet. Please keep the kids over to this side. They're welcome to stay in the gym, but we just need them to stay all the way over and away from the chairs. We had a pretty couple close calls last week. We don't want to get any kids uh, hurt and uh, produce any of the unrighteous anger that we spoke about on behalf of parents or anything like that. So we don't want any of that. So please just watch your kids. I know mine, little ones, we've got to be careful of those. So please be careful with that. All right, let me leave you with this. Think about this, church. This sermon starts with the word blessed. Blessed. And if you, as you listen to that this morning and you thought, yeah, I'm an imperfect hell-deserving, sinful person who by the grace of God has been redeemed and saved and is being transformed. I want you to know that you are blessed. You are blessed. And so go this week confident in your standing before God and your blessing in Him. You're dismissed. Go in His peace.